Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you if you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. This episode of the AR-15 Podcast brought to you by Otis Technology, the cleaning sponsor of the AR-15 Podcast. Check them out, otistechnology.com. So... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the AR-15 Podcast. Today, J.D. and I are going to be uh, taking on the challenge of uh, wrapping up our, uh, I guess, uh, tour through the the history of the AR-15. But before we get that started, J.D., why don't you uh, help us with uh, policing some brass? You know, we want to say thank you to everybody who's supporting us through PayPal and Patreon. Your support makes a difference in the show. Uh, we were just able to uh, replace Reed's mic because of your support. Uh, we've been having some audio issues, and we think we've uh, figured out what the problem was, and part of that was a mic replacement. So uh, thank you very much for being a Patreon supporter. Uh, every dollar that you put into the show goes into the show, not into our pockets. It's invested in making the podcast better uh, for more content and production value. Uh, so thank you to Jason, Tom, Stephen, all doing that old salty iron sight level, and many of you doing it the Our Lips Are Sealed level, the uh, 80s girl group. Um, we made a little fun of that on Loose Rounds recently that you'll be guys, you guys will be hearing real soon. So um, if you'd like to support the show, if you appreciate the content coming out, just a couple bucks a month, whether you do one of those $30 a month like the old Salty Ironsight level or it's 15 or just a couple bucks, we appreciate it. You can do that through PayPal or through Patreon. Uh, check it out at our website, ar-15podcast.com. That's ar-15podcast.com. And all your support's appreciated. And it helps us uh, bring you cool stuff like the giveaway we're doing with uh, Unbranded AR right now. We have a complete builder's kit that is from front to back. Everything you possibly need, plus some titanium parts, to build your own AR-15. It's kind of our Christmas present to you guys. One lucky AR-15 podcast listener is going to pick that up. So you can sign up also at our website, ar-15podcast.com, and know that uh, because of your support, these are kind of some of the cool things that we can do. Um, also, make sure you're listening. Uh, we will draw someone's name on the 31st. We will have it out there uh, for two shows for two weeks. We will give you two weeks to claim your prize and if you don't after that we'll move on to the next and uh, you will miss out so uh, please listen to win we want to make sure it gets into the hands of a uh, ar-15 podcast listener instead of somebody who's just a prize pig so uh, with that sign up ar-15podcast.com and uh, read what have you been up to in uh, guns recently well i have to tell you i've always been really fascinated with the uh, browning high power and, you know, it was always one of those things that I thought I'd, I'd get to eventually. Unfortunately, Browning has decided to pull the plug on the high power. And, you know, I'm just, I'm not at a point where I'm willing to pay the retail prices that I see for one off of gun broker or out of a gun store or anything. So I, I, I went ahead and pulled the trigger on a, a, a Regent um, BR9. That is, uh, I think you would say it's, Tisas, T-I-S-A-S, which is a, I think it's a Turkish company, but uh, by all accounts, they're licensed uh, to manufacture it. And it is uh, an identical, uh, I guess, clone, uh, uh, as you would expect. And, and it should use all of the other available um, high power uh, 
accessories and, and add-ons. So that's kind of what I've been up to. Uh, I'm pretty excited at the, uh, when this airs, this will be coming out. What date will be coming out? The 17th. Um, so today, Monday the 17th, um, according to UPS, my Benelli uh, will be delivered today to New Frontier Armory. Uh, hopefully it's in the middle of the day so I can pick it up. If not, it'll be tomorrow, but, uh, I get to ship out a pistol to read and, uh, also pick up my Benelli M4. Merry Christmas to me. So I'm, I'm quite excited for that. Looking forward to, uh, Monday. I know most people don't look forward to Mondays, but I'm pretty stoked. I'll probably grab some shells and, uh, run out to the desert and start shooting bunny rabbits and stuff like that. Well, I think that that's plenty of reason to get out there and be excited. Yeah. So that's what I've got going on and trying to, um, I've got, I thought I ditched a six, five Creedmoor build. I thought I was done with it, but then, um, you know, you clean out the safe and you find a arrow precision M five set and you realize only you (laughs) clean out the safe and find more firearms than you ever thought you had. And then you realize you have a Faxon, uh, six, five Creedmoor barrel. You have a bolt, you have a Luth AR stock, for it you've got pretty much everything and then you talk to arrow precision and they give you a nice sweetheart deal on a handguard so um and then you've realized you have a lower parts kit hanging around so i think the only thing i really need are the buffer spring and the buffer weight um and that would be a kind of a complete rifle to build and i need a muzzle device i think so <laughs> so a 6.5 creedmoor is going to be put together along with that uh a1 clone and then a 308. And then I'm going to jump into the, I'm going to put that, uh, arrow, the winter camouflage that you have the 6.5 Timberwolf in. Yeah. I am going to jump into that and put a 224 Valkyrie, uh, in it. Oh, that's so useless. I don't even know why you would even entertain that. Mostly just to irritate you, but oh. I don't know. I think they fixed the ammo problems and stuff like that. I'm interested to see what it does. And, and that's it. Okay. No, I mean, I'm just saying, and, I mean, what, what does that matter? Just because. Just because I can do it. All right. Well, hey, why don't you uh, tell the folks about our uh, main topic sponsor? And our, main topic, this. our main topic sponsor is Ammo.com. They have teamed up with the AR-15 podcast to save you money on your next ammo purchase of $200 or more, and also by supporting the show. So you can save $20 on your next purchase of $200 or more when you use our special link and it helps support the show ammo.com slash AR 15 podcast. That's ammo.com slash AR 15 podcast. Alex and the gang over there believing in what we're doing and uh, helping us out. So if you're looking to make your next ammo purchase, check out ammo.com slash AR 15 podcast and you'll support the show. All right. The history of the AR 15 part two. You know, last uh, episode uh, where we were talking about the history, we kind of talked about inception of the uh, the rifle to uh, its adoption um, by the military in 1965. And, and that adoption process was kind of a slow and steady process. And it got to a point where, you know, the, the Depart- Department of Defense had basically overcome all of its uh, – I guess, uh, hesitancy to adopt the rifle and was going in full bore. And so in terms of the numbers of rifles acquired, I think, um, somewhere around 1965, they had, uh, gotten to the point where they were getting ready to acquire 
a million, million and a half um, M16s and whatever various configurations, whether it's the uh, M16A1 or the uh, M16. And, uh, you know, with that, I think that you could probably, you know, talk about procurement contracts, you know, until the end of time. But I think we can shift our focus from those details to kind of like what the rifle was doing uh, in the field in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, the soldiers that were having to use it. And I know that there are a lot of people that have heard the various stories of, of the problems and the difficulties that were being had um, in Vietnam with the rifle. And, you know, the thing that I think is most overriding in all of the, the reading I've done and all of the uh, the research I've done is that the Army was just not very happy that this is the rifle they had. And I think it's been asserted that prior to the adoption of the M16, no American military rifle was ever manufactured or, I guess, never developed by a civilian arms company. I guess we'd be talking post-World War One. But I think, uh, by and large, it was uh, Springfield Armory that was responsible for a great many of those um, designs. And then they would have firearms companies manufacture them. And, you know, that, that date may extend back. I guess the, uh, what is it, the old trap door? I can't remember what those rifles were, but I think those were Springfields as well. But I think the point is, is that the military wasn't really gung-ho. Uh, in fact, um, during the entirety of the M16's use in Vietnam from 1967 to 1975, they had what was called a future rifle program trying to come up with a replacement for the AR. But um, really what it comes down to is uh, at the very beginning when they were beginning to talk about the, uh, I guess, uh, deployment uh, of the uh, rifle uh, with the various units, uh, they were aware of a number of problems. In fact, uh, one source I saw said there were 130 technical issues uh, identified about the rifle. Um, There was uh, something called a technical coordinating committee, which basically um, I think was brought in in 1961 with uh, initial orders and it was phased out in I think 65 or 67. But the technical coordinating committee had uh, representatives from all the major branches, well, all the branches, and uh, they submitted their suggestions to um, McNamara and Westmoreland. Um, I think what it comes down to is a lot of little, you know, little complaints that were not really all that meaningful. Uh, but there were a few that, that were substantial and ended up in modifications. You know, the first was the magazine. Um you know, the, the problem they had with the original, um, magazine is that they get magazine jams and, uh, they were aluminum magazines. And, and contrary to what I think a lot of people believe, I can find no evidence or assertion that they were disposable magazines. In fact, they were issued as part of, uh, uh, your kit and, uh, from what I understand, you're accountable for the, the magazines. But the uh, the waffle magazines that were manufactured as kind of a, I guess, a 
an evolution of the AR-10 waffle magazines really wasn't all that effective. Colt magazine had some issues. Um, you know, I think by and large, what they ended up doing was addressing how the soldiers used them. Uh, they were told not to top them off, um, put 18 or 19 rounds. They thought that if uh, you told a soldier to, you know, put fewer than 20 rounds in it, it wasn't a likelihood that he'd accidentally put 21 rounds in it and jam it up. Um, there was a thought of introducing plastic magazines, which were disposable, one or two uses, and then you'd get rid of them. But the idea was is that they'd be preloaded in the, the factory, so you wouldn't have issues of jams because they'd have the right number of rounds in them. Um, and uh, I can't find any evidence that they were issued. Uh, there's a suggestion that they may have been issued to the elite units, the special forces, but, you know, once again, nothing conclusive. So that was one of the, the issues that they identified. Another was the twist rate, twist rate of the barrel. So, you know, I think that one of the things that is closely or most closely related to this is the idea that the projectile uh, coming out of these uh, M16s would tumble and create, you know, devastating wounds. And there has been, I think, a uh, a contention that that was a design uh, implementation, that it was intended to do that by design. But I think that that is not necessarily the case. Um, U.S. military doctrine has never incorporated the idea of wounding a soldier to um, overburden uh, an aggressor uh, opponent's uh, resources. I mean, I, I would challenge anybody to show me the, the white paper or the discussion about how wounding is better than, than taking out a commission. Um, but at the same time, you know, up until that point, all of the projectiles were heavier 30 caliber projectiles and the, the wounds were typically through and through wounds. We didn't see the kind of tumbling that we saw with the AR. What I've been able to piece together from the sources is that what you had is a small caliber projectile that in and of itself was unstable, comparatively speaking, when you put it up against the heavier 30 caliber rounds, it also had a twist rate that did not impart on it the same kind of stability that you might see coming out of one of the, the older standards. And in this environment, uh, simple deflection caused those projectiles to begin tumbling and oftentimes just uh, entering the, the, the body of a, uh, for a, a soldier uh, would cause it to begin tumbling after meeting the various dense uh, objects in the body, bones most likely. Um, and, you know, the, the reports of how devastating these injuries were um, are pretty gruesome in terms of, you know, outward examination. But, the thought was by the technical coordinating committee that the one in 14 twist was not imparting enough uh, rotation to stabilize the bullet. But there was an actual contingency within the military, within the army that said, if we improve this 
then we will have a less devastating round and we don't want that. Um, you know, once again, take that for what you will. I'm not sure that that uh, really was an issue, but certainly the one in 14 twist, uh, as being insufficient for uh, stabilizing the projectile was brought up by the coordinating committee. Of course, another thing that kind of dates back to the very beginning of its adoption was the idea of a forward assist. Uh, Stoner didn't design a forward assist, and uh, the Air Force didn't uh, see the necessity for a forward assist. And so it was really an issue driven by the Army. And the Army's insistence on the forward assist, um, I think, was probably cloaked in a couple of, I don't know, pretexts. they wanted to make sure that, that you could quietly close the bolt if needed. And so they thought that, you know, having a forward assist would give them that ability. But I mean, I think JD, you and I could attest to the fact that you can easily do that without having a forward assist or using a forward assist. So I, I think that was more pretextual. And I'm not really sure why they wanted it. Uh, perhaps it was to address some of the, the concerns they had in the field with the rifles being unreliable. Um, and then the, the fourth one is that they were noticing slam fires. I mean, a ridiculous number of slam fires. And at first they had thought the resulting cause of that was um, improperly seated primers. But it, they took those rifles into test and turns out that wasn't the problem at all. It was the, the mass of the firing pin. And so what they ended up doing is reducing that mass um, in order to, uh, I guess, implement the cheapest solution to the problem. But, uh, you know, I think that's kind of the the core of everything that the technical coordinating coordinating committee came out with that ended up being a big deal. Um, And then, of course, um, I guess parallel to that, but having nothing to do with the technical coordinating committee were all of the issues caused by ammunition. Do you, do you have any idea of, of the, the complaints that people had about ammunition, JD? Well, I imagine there are some, but going through it, I mean, we've talked about it before, the, the complaints for the ammunition that are there, but I imagine that, um, it was a big deal, especially where they were using the rifle at. You know, I think that was something coupled with an environmental issue. And do you really think it played that big of a role though? The environmental, like the, I guess my, I guess my question is when they tested the ammunition, did they not test like, did they just test it? Say it was in, uh, El Cajon, California, where it's just nice all year round and there's no, you know, mitigating circumstances, but then they took it over to the jungle and then they had a bunch of problems with it. Well, actually the, the ammunition issue is really completely different and, and we can get into that. But and and I'll couple that with the the issues of I guess maintenance failures and training failures. But, but the uh, the ammunition that was originally developed for the rifle used IMR powder, and what ended up happening uh, was kind of a, a twofold thing. Uh, up to this point, uh, the manufacturers of the ammunition had been using much dirtier ammunition um, for. Um, the old uh, .30-06 projectiles, and they needed to use it, or they felt compelled to use it, and uh, used it instead of the IMR powder that was suggested by um, Stoner. 
Um, additionally, uh, there appears to have been a shortage because DuPont was tasked with manufacturing powders uh, of another sort for um, other projects. And so availability of the actual IMR powder, I think, was probably another contributing factor. Um, one of the other things is that the source of the dirty powder that they've been using in the uh, projectiles up to date uh, seems to have uh, either been sourced from or an additional source of said powder was um, from old artillery powder. <laughs> and the powder was uh, highly acidic, and they put calcium carbonate in the powder to, um, I guess, halt the, the, the acid reaction in the powder. But the problem was, and I think one of our listeners raised this issue in our uh, Facebook uh, question about the history of the AR. Um, I guess uh, uh, his, his dad, perhaps, or an uncle, someone was involved in kind of sourcing out that whole issue. And, you know, his assertion of the calcium being the issue is essentially the same. But the thing was, is that when they were shooting this dirty ammunition, in kind of a pre-perfected AR platform, the calcium carbonate, unburned powder, and um, I guess uh, debris from the casings and the projectiles was floating into the gas tube, and it was collecting, and it was clogging them. And I think all of us know that if you don't have a gas tube, you don't really have a uh, an AR-15 you kind of have a single action rifle at that point. So that problem resulted in a number of failures in the field with the weapon system. And I think that there was unfortunately probably too much of a delay, um, more, more of a delay than there should have been in getting the problem rectified. And I think that, you know, once again, goes back to the issue of there are a lot of people that were trying to sink the M16 program. Um, at the same time, there were a lot of people that were improperly blaming the wrong things. Perhaps it was because they didn't want to be the one that was ultimately responsible. But they did ultimately figure it out. And they ended up um, reducing the amount of calcium carbonate in the powder to clean it up. And that did reduce some of the, the consequence of using that dirty powder. But uh, another thing that's kind of interesting is that. Um, over the course of the problems they were having, they went from their acceptable, I don't know how many, three or four failures per thousand um, up to 27 or 28 failures per thousand because of the ammunition. And then implementing the technical coordinating committee changes, uh, coupling those with their I guess, reformulation of the powder for the ammunition, they got down to below one in a thousand um, failures. So all of those growing pains did result in a more effective, um, or I guess a more reliable platform. Um, and I would say, and I think we mentioned it last time, there were some concerns about the quality control of things coming out of Colt and, uh, of course, the you know ammunition uh, issues and the variation and the kind of powder they were using. You know, it, it resulted in the, the military coming out with a technical data package for the, the platform 
they basically said this is the way it's supposed to come out of the factory. This is the way that ammunition is supposed to be delivered. This is the way the magazines are supposed to arrive. And it was in the formulation of that that I think they ironed out the bulk of their problems. Um, and, you know, once again, like I was saying, the, the future rifle program was begun in 1965 to really take the place of the AR-15, I mean, the M-16. But it's interesting that it was canceled in 1975 because at the time we were post-Vietnam era. Uh, we had a great many um, anti-war legislators um, who wanted to, you know, just kind of tamp down on military budgets and, and kind of roll everything back. And so there really wasn't the pressing interest in the future rifle program. You know, and at the same time, Frankfurt Armory had been looking to the uh, possible areas for future improvement for the M16. And it's as a result of those items that we get the M16A2, which did a number of things to improve what was being done uh, in terms of uh, the utilization of the M16. That's M16A2 also was benefiting by the adoption of the Belgian, uh, what is it, SS109 um, projectiles, which is essentially the M855 projectile that uh, we have available today. It's a 62-grain um, projectile with a steel penetrator. Um, it's got a, a steel core in there. But... That coupled with the A2 improvements, I think really created a ground level of stability and um, comfort in the platform's ability to do the job it was supposed to do. And, you know, in terms of the M16A2, you know, I think that we increased the twist rate. We changed the barrel profile so that we could address uh, heating and uh, uh, how rigid, uh, the barrel would uh, be able to maintain itself in uh, high-stress, uh, rapid-fire situations. I think they added a uh, onboard, um, what do you call it, the trap door and the buttstock so that they could put the cleaning kit in. And I'm trying to think through the other, they improved the sights. The front post stayed pretty much the same. They changed the form of the forward assist, and they changed the handguard, the furniture. I can't think of any major changes in the, the weapons platform other than that. The, uh, the thing that I was talking about with the ammunition, JD, you know, there was such a press to get the AR into the military system. And I think that was driven by Curtis Flamey. Um, there was some interest by some other, uh, higher level, um, military, you know, uh, Defense Department elites to get the platform in there. Um, but at the same time, they were competing with a contingency that had already adopted the M14, had already had it, you know, well into production and well uh, distributed into, you know, units. And when the change happened, it was sometimes very rapid. You know, your unit might uh, leave the States, you know, being equipped with M14s and uh, arrive in country in Vietnam and be handed you know, an M16 and three magazines, not having had much in the way of real range time, uh, much in the way of uh, education about what it is you were using, uh, or even 
really how to functionally maintain it. Um, you know, I can't imagine that even if you were going to implement some kind of a training regimen while you were, you know, in Vietnam, that these guys would have much time at all to uh, soak up that information. I certainly wouldn't have the time, I think, necessary for it to be given to them. And so the ammunition, the, the fouling that was created, coupled with the environment that they were utilizing the rifle in, and I think a lack of adequate um, training in terms of maintenance caused there to be some serious, serious failures. And I think that one can say that those failures resulted in the loss of life. The stories abound in all the resources of, you know, coming upon individuals with the, the rifle broken open with someone trying to fix something. And, you know, I, that's a kind of a horrible image to think that you're going to be out there in the midst of a crap storm and all of a sudden <laughs> your firearm just stops. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was, pointed out that a lot of the uh, units that had been early adopters, the you know, special forces units who had been using the weapon for years, had been properly trained in the, the firearms maintenance, had been given um, all of the, the knowledge they needed to, you know, undertake their part of it. So all they were facing are issues with the ammunition, which in and of itself was a big enough issue, but it wasn't compounded the way that the environment and some of the other uh, elements were coming into play. But, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of times there was just bad press coming down about the M16 because of this kind of resistance to its adoption within military circles, uh, because of the, the failures of the companies um, to put out something that, that uh, was identical to Stoner's original uh, reliable design with the inability of the systems in place to properly, you know, uh, deploy the system to units that were getting ready to use them and make sure that they knew what to do and how to do it. Um, and so, you know, that, that stuff doesn't seem to, wear off very quickly. And I think you could probably go to some places where people would still badmouth the, you know, AR because it's part of what they understand about the M16. And I don't know, have you ever come across uh, any of the old fogies that are just anti AR15 because they thought it was crap in Vietnam? Um, I don't know if they've had that held that opinion because of Vietnam. I mean, of course, I've come across fogies that think that the AR15s, you know, the equivalent of walking on somebody's lawn and playing hip hop music. But <laughs> I don't know if anybody has, has taken that stance from just being in Vietnam. I have a handful of Vietnam vets that I know, and I can't think of them knocking the, knocking the rifle. I know that they have clones and stuff like that, that uh, they hold on to because of much like, you know, you've talked about before carrying it, you know, makes you kind of partial to it. So I know, I think all of them have a clone of some sort of what they carried back in Vietnam. So, you know, really one of the things that I think is interesting that during the kind of post Vietnam war time, uh, in the midst of this attempt to, um, modernize, uh, the rifle, um, because of the various, uh, rifle programs, there was of course the future rifle program. There was a successor to that. 
Um, before that, there is the SPIW, which uh, I can't remember what it stands for. But if you listen to episode one of this series, you should be able to find it. <laughs> um, the uh, the various companies that were trying to come in and um, present a platform that could take the place of the AR-15 were, you know, once again kind of hammered by a bunch of things that ended up really saving the M16. You know, of course, we have a reduction of budgets. You know, if there's not a whole lot of money out there to be chased, then people aren't going to present new projects. Um, You know, we had this improvement in an existing platform. And so when you get to the uh, post-M14 uh, adoption irritation and find that, well, okay, if we've got to live with it, we might as well live with something that we can use. Uh, I think it makes more sense to go through the process as, you know, in terms of budgeting to upgrade the A1 to an A2, uh, rather than to go out and, you know, incorporate another design. Um, you know, around, I don't know, um, early to mid sixties, the original, crew over at Armalite began leaving and they went to Colt. You know, Colt ultimately had um, the the contract and um, that contract ended up lasting for some time until FN stepped in and was able to take up some of that. But Stoner eventually went over to uh, Knight's Armament. You know, we, we know the Knights armament, um, because of some of the things that they have, uh, uh, provided as integral components of, uh, the ARs that, or the M16s that we see out in the field today. Um, their handguards were part of the M4 program and, and they were adopted as, uh, what is it, the RAS 5 in the, uh, Marine Corps, uh, what is that, the A3? Uh, or maybe it's the A4. In any case, it's the Marine Corps' um, flat-top version of the uh, M16 that they fielded in uh, much of Iraq and Afghanistan. But the uh, the Knight's Armament connection to Stoner, I think, in large part, may have driven some of the innovations that we saw kind of post-90s, post-mid-80s. Um, and I'm not really sure when they came into being, but of course, um, we had the patent that Knight's Armament took out on its quad rail. We have the patent that, uh, Daniel Defense took out on its, um, um, well, I guess Knight's Armament was a quad rail handguard, but, uh, Daniel Defense had a quad rail gas block. Um, I think these are kind of the, the beginning stages of what ended up being the the modern perception of the AR as, you know, Legos for, for men. Um, you know, it was also in this post Vietnam war era time that Colt, who I think by and large, uh, it can be said was successful due to its military contracts, found itself in a position where it was trying to replace lost revenues. Hmm. And, uh, the, the AR-15 went back into the market again. It had been offered kind of a pre-M16 adoption, but it was basically put back into the market after the production demands halted and Colt was able to turn its attention to other things. So, and I know we talked about this in loose rounds, you know, when guys get 
home from these conflicts, sometimes they're real comfortable with the things that they used to carry all day long every day. And uh, I think that there may have been a big drive um, in that market, probably not as much as Colt would have wanted, but to kind of popularize the AR-15. And of course, we had the guys that were doing, um, you know, the Camp Perry competitions, cross-core service rifle. Uh, I think many of those guys uh, had, I guess, evolved their tastes, moving away from the grands uh, into the ARs. So, I mean, I think that was one of the things that that drove the the rifle into the the market. And you know, I don't know, JD, maybe you have some thoughts, but. I mean, we have the the 94 band, and I know as a kid, you know, I grew up in a, a, a household where, you know, the rifles were all over the place. Before the 94 band, I'd been in the service and carried the rifle. And, you know, when I came out, I still, you know, had an appreciation for it. But I don't ever remember it having the kind of, I don't know, market appeal that we've seen for the last... I don't know, 15 years. What do you, what do you think is driving that? I think it's a, a generation. I mean, think about it. So the, the guys in Vietnam, they're, they're now older and their kids now have disposable income to go through and, uh, you know, be able to buy things. Those that went through desert storm, we're also now seeing, you know, them be able to afford things and, and their kids, you know, their generation of kids growing up to be those younger shooters that we have and things like that. And then uh, guys like you that were in service and, and had it and have an appreciation for it um, coming into the funds of doing it. And, and it's turned into where there was just one or two options. Now, like now to build an AR 15, there's millions of them. Well, I mean, probably not millions, but, there's so many options where you can do the Legos by yourself, you know, the Lego thing and put together a million different combinations. Um, I think it's fueled by that, but I think, cause we talked about it in the loose rounds too. Now we've got a conflict that's going on that that's been going on for 18 years and, you know, families that have grown up around guns. I didn't grow up around guns. I was taking hunting a couple of times. Um, my jump into the firearms world was um, done by, you know, lack of security is what it felt um, when something happened close to home and, you know, we had a baseball bat and that was it. And man, that started the first gun and then that started the first lower and all that stuff. But I think you're going to see, I think it's just going to keep building. Um, I don't know if we've reached a tipping point where, and it's like a, another assault weapons ban can come through. Um, I mean, of course it can come through, but I think it would have devastating political fallout from the the election afterwards. I don't think it would be a long-term thing because I, I think you'd just, you'd be hanging yourself uh, to do that. But I think it's spurned from, you know, moms and dads being in the service, the kids being around firearms, the moms and dad being around firearms, wanting to carry what they have, teaching their kids how to shoot. And I think we're seeing a lot of that move down generation, generationally. And also, you know, you can't discount the video game factor. You know, Call of Duty and all those things have been around for a while. And, man, you see guys. I know guys that buy Desert Eagles just because they shot one on Call of Duty. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, my kids identify, like, they play Fortnite is the big thing right now. And they had a there was an MP5 in it, and they thought it was so cool. And I'm like, guys, you've shot that before. Like, you've actually shot that before. And, you know, I have a clone upstairs. 
and they're like, oh, whoa, that's right. Or, you know, you pick the M4, you know, the Benelli to do the shotgun in some of those games or the USP pistols and things like that. So these games now we're going on gaming influencing guys to get into guns and do stuff like that too, because they've used them when they were younger in video games and now they want to grow up and you know, you have that video game effect also. You know, I think that's, that's, that's true. You know, I wonder in, in real dollars in, in a real sense, what a 10 year drought did to a, an eager market. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing like a prohibition to, to cause things to, uh, really pique your interest. And I wonder whether there is just this pent up demand that was like, I, I don't know, frenzied because of a 10 year drought. And you know, it's not uh, that you couldn't get, you know, something on a, an, uh, an AR 15, you know, foundation uh, out of the market. You, you just had to play by the rules and you couldn't have any of the evil features and all that. But, you know, there were, there were plenty of rifles in the market. And I'm sure, of course, you had a high price points because of supply uh, and demand. Yeah. But, you know, I want, I wonder if you'd have a high price point. I mean, because I think we're releasing a, an interview with Aero Precision after the first of the year and we just recorded it the other day. Um, and Chad had something interesting to say because they're facing different um, restrictions on their um, rifles up there. And so he was saying that um, the gun stars have been kind of busy because anybody under 21, um, 18 to 21, won't be able to buy a rifle come January 1st. They they have to wait until they're 21. And so well, there's been. And clarify that that's because of uh, state law changes state in law, what state? Yeah. Washington. Um, and so they're, they're seeing the rush there. I think you see a, a, an assault weapons ban now. I don't know if the prices would go so astronomical. I mean, if they did, I'm sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> I mean, literally sitting on a gold mine, but I don't, I think there's so many out there and they just keep getting pumped out. And it's once they broke that dam, was it 2003 when it sunsetted? Four. 2004 once they broke that dam that dam just started spilling and there every day there are ARs being added to the market and people are purchasing them and buying them you know the run up to if if they were banned again or assault weapons banned would be would be crazy town i mean well i, I mean think about this in the last election cycle when we elected our current president I think there were a lot of companies that were thinking that he wouldn't get it, that we would be faced with a uh, Democrat in the White House who was going to take away our rights. Well, I think that spurred many of them to kind of, you know, anticipate where they were going to be on the starting block and get some inventory in that ultimately ended up not going out the door as fast as they wanted. You yeah. know, I mean, I get that with an election, but man, if they, if they introduced legislation like they did in 93, I don't know if there was a rush in 93 uh, or 94 or 94, whenever it was. I don't no, know I if th- there was a rush. I, I think there was. And, you know, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm irritated to this point that, you know, in 1986, nobody thought to, you know, buy a couple of full auto M16s <sighs> before the, the ban hit, you know, knowing full well that my, my stepfather was an FFL. I, I'm just beside myself, but, uh, 
you know, I got to think that there was. But, you know, once again, I don't remember the AR-15 being like the thing. You know what I mean? There were other. Yeah, it is now. I mean, look at look at the popularity of this, you know, not tooting our horn because it's you guys that make it happen. But look at the popularity of this show. This show is one of the top shows on the Firearms Radio Network. We only talk about AR-15s. Right. You know, there's a whole other world of firearms out there, but we only talk about AR-15s. And it's the popularity of that, realizing that this this is going to become the gun. I mean, if it's not already, when you're passing it down to your grandkids or your, your kids down the road 20, 30 years from now, this is going to be the gun that gets passed down. Yeah. This is going to yeah. take over that space. This is going to be that that it gun. And so... And I don't think they can, I don't think you can stop the tide. I mean, there was that guy that was, I can't believe he was elected. He was like, we'll pay billions to do door to door confiscation. And, you know, it's all right. The government's got nukes and, you know. Well, and I think it's funny that that moron didn't realize that he doesn't actually have access to the button. No, he, he doesn't. And in fact, he'd probably be one of the first that was hanged on the South Lawn. Uh, or hung on the South Lawn, pardon my redneck French. Um, it's just not, it'd be interesting to read. I don't know if there's any, co- like, unfortunately, the difference between the news coverage today and then is, ba- you know, day and night. Um, even the pro-gun coverage, I mean, we we would know of a rush real quick. We would get the background check notifications. I mean, I, I, I'd go buy another 86 lowers. You know, I think I'm at that point where, you know, I'm just, filling in gaps in my, in, in, in my wish list. So I don't, I don't feel the pressing drive to get out there and get ahead of that. But you know, I, you, I do appreciate, Oh yeah. Yeah. You Cause I do appreciate that kind of the, the arbitrage, you know, the idea that I'm going to buy low, sell high. I mean, that appeals to me. And so, yeah, I think I would, I don't know that I'd buy a bunch now waiting for the next, you know what I'm saying? But, well, I, mean, I, I so, definitely so, get on the front end of it so that, you know, six months or a year in, I could start selling them or I keep them. And, you know, if the band came to be, then, well, you know, you're sitting in a catbird seat. But if there's no band, I have to build new rifles. And I mean, I don't have 86 lowers. I've got a lot, but I don't have 86. But, you know, I think about things like that I want to hand down to my kids and, you know, I want them to be able to have the same the same ability to be like, you know, Reed thinks it's dumb. I'm building a two, two, four Valkyrie. Well, I want them to have the same when their Reed comes into their life and tells them that they're idiots for building this off caliber. You know, I want them to be able to have that, that thing. So probably in the next month or two, I will make a, a lower purchase, um, secure some for my kids not anything outrageous, but I'm facing different circumstances than, than Reed is in Texas. We have a governor elect that, is it, this is a family friendly show? Is it yeah, idiot? You can't and, say uh, that. Yeah, I, I almost did, but um, so I got to be prepared. Even though I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here next summer when all this stuff signs in. I don't know what life's going to hold, so I'm trying my best to get out of the state. But ooh, it'd be interesting to it'd be interesting to go back and see if there's anything. If you could check background checks, if you could get stats from them from sales from a company or something to see if they had a ramp up of sales. Cause man, I wasn't aware I was, I was 12. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I wasn't aware at all. Uh, even when the band Sunset, it I wasn't too into it or anything. I remember hearing about it Sunset, um, but yeah, I'm. Uh, it'd be interesting to see. It, it would definitely be interesting to see, and I do think it'd be political suicide for. Let's be honest. It's not going to be a Republican party or conservative party that introduces that. It would have yeah. to be a Democrat. It would, I would, I would suspect if I'm looking into the future and being Nostradamus, um, if they pass an assault weapons ban, um, it'll get challenged constitutionally, um, which would go to the Supreme Court, which now leans a little bit differently. And, uh, even passing it, I believe there would be a tidal wave come the midterm elections um, that that party who introduced an assault weapons ban would be put out on their butts. Well, and, and, you know, I think one of the things that occurs to me is that you would really have a hard time um, having a retroactive ban. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, I think you'd, you'd have a ban much like the 94 ban that says, well, you know, these are grandfathered in, but can't do anything new. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, so, I don't think that so would much. take the 8 million or however many millions of them off yeah. the, the, out of the market. I just don't think that they would ever disappear. Is it only 8 million? Well, I mean, it might be more, but I think we have more firearms in the country than we have citizens. Yeah. I keep seeing the, uh, I keep seeing the numbers that say we own 300 million, but there's no way that number is correct. Oh, I think it's far more than that. I think I think it's if uh, I think it's probably close to double that. Do you think it's double that? Yeah. I mean, think about the firearms explosion and I know not every background check leads to a firearms purchase, but month after month we're seeing like 2 million like boom 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 just stacked on top of each other. I mean, if you were to take every firearm, every lower receiver, I mean, and they're pumping them out. I think I think we're close to I think we're closer to 500 million than we are 300. Uh, that may be. I don't know this, how far I'd go to to put a, a fine point on that. But you know, I think you're right. There are way more out there than anybody has guessed because of well, heck, the number that that go out right now under the current system that just aren't part of a next check um like here in Texas because I've already gone through a, an FBI background check. Yeah. I think it's FBI and uh, the uh, uh, department of public safety um, has already run my, you know, background criminal check and all that. I've been issued my um, CHL. And so I go to my firearms FFL and he doesn't have to go and call the NIC system because my background check has already been done. Now, if I didn't have my, card, you know, I'd have to go through one of those, but there are a lot of people I know that have those. And so if they're not going through Nick's, yeah. Nick's can't throw their numbers up. How many yeah, is that? Is that half? Is oh, it more than man. half? I mean, I have one too. I mean, and we, we represent on the show there. So, I mean, that's, I don't have to do the, the background check because I have a CCW and, and think about it. We're, I don't know. I, I, I hate to be stereotypical, but I would, I would, I would posit that we are more likely to buy another one than someone who is not. You know what I'm saying? Man, I struggle with the thought of always one more. I mean, I, I'm all good for a minute after I get a build, and I'm like, oh, I, I want that. I, now, now the 6.8 6. stuff with the military, and I'm like, huh, 
Well, you know, here's the thing that I keep hearing about that I'm like, huh, I wonder. It's the 8.6 Creedmoor. And, you know, that's just the 338. But 8.6, you know, see, 300 Weatherby Magnum is kind of like the the big boy for me in terms of personal use. Now, I've got a 7-millimeter Magnum, but, you know, it's not the same caliber. Um, but it, they're they're belted magnums, and so the idea of a three three eight in a bolt gun kind of has some appeal to me. I just don't know how much. Doesn't Sword International, those guys up north of me, don't they have yes. the large calibers like that in the AR? I'm assuming ten platform. No, it's not an AR ten platform. It is a proprietary platform. It they is. they um, those guys really did basically, you know buck the system and anytime someone said why did you want to do that or you can't do that they figured out a way to do it mm. and uh so it's it's basically a proprietary platform that holds that larger caliber which i think is fascinating i think it's awesome but um i don't know and i guess that's another thing that you think about when we talk about an evolving understanding of the platform itself it's the idea that you can springboard off of something that is so well known and go into your next thing. Because, I mean, think about um, the MPX. It's not really all that related to the AR. But what does it have in common with it? Uh, it has the same takedown pins, the same fire controls. You know, they didn't have to do that. But it certainly does make it operate much like uh, a common or a, a platform that people are commonly familiar with. So, I mean, there's kind of that inspiration in the in the totality that has done this thing. I think that's amazing. Well, I just want to point out before we go too much further that we are awesomely in luck. You know why that is? Why is that? Because the recorder failed. <laughs> we oh. have a backup on on YouTube. Ooh. You know, I tell you what. <laughs> you know what I hate about my recorder. What? I look at the battery charge when I start every episode, and there's never this gradual lowering of the battery charge. You know what there is? It's full the whole time until well, the day know, it's not. We've we've put that battery, we've put that recorder through what two hundred and seventy something episodes. Um, if you count well, lose rounds, way more than that. Yeah, so it may be time for her to be retired. <laughs> no, it's the battery. It's, it's the, the battery. battery. Ah, oh well. But at least but, we have our broadcast. You know, it got it, it gets me thinking too. So just that number of AR-15s, you know, you think about the SIG MPX or you think about AR-10s, you think about uh, the AR-9s and the pistol caliber carbines and all those. You know, if you add all those up together, those are going to be defined as an assault weapon. I mean, there's there's probably 10 to 15 to 20 million of those. Out there. I, I I wouldn't be surprised. And so rolling back, and oof, then you like you come up you come up on property, like you're you're taking people's property or telling them they can't. Have, oof. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a clause in the Constitution that has addressed that. I only read the First and Second Amendments. I don't get past those. Well, uh, the takings clause is uh, important as well. It's. Uh, Private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Man, just compensation. I'm telling you what, my AR-15s are worth like 10 million a piece. 
That's, that's to me. Now somebody's going to get mad and write the show and just said I sold my gun rights for $10 million rifle. Well, heck, if I could get $10 million a rifle, I'd buy an island that was not incorporated into any nation's laws and uh, call up FN and have him ship over a box full. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Redica. <laughs> yep. And they would all have giggle switches. Giggle switches. And I'd buy barrels and barrels of ammunition from uh, uh, Brownells. Did you see that barrel they posted on social media? Yeah, but... I, and I saw the the guys over at the the gun collective, you know, going, "Oh, what's the big deal? We've had these for years." Well, yeah, but we haven't had them at twenty eight cents around for years. It's it's that's a new thing. Twenty eight cents around is awesome. Yeah, but for twelve thousand five hundred rounds, that's a lot of money. Yeah, but let's see, what would that be? If you could put five hundred in an ammo can, seven. No, no, it's twelve. So da, 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 divide by two. We're doing 25, math. 25 ammo cans. That would be awesome to have 25 ammo cans stuck in a corner. I'd be the guy that would count them out. I, I don't think I could let them sit in the barrel. Because, I mean, literally, you know, the guy pulls that barrel off the forklift, sets it in your garage, and you know what? It never moves. <laughs> You're never moving 12,500 rounds. That's not bad. $3,500 for that? Is that yeah. what it is? That what it's That's what I calculated. 3500 bucks. That's not too bad. Yeah. Maybe we could talk to Roy and give a listener away a barrel of ammo. <laughs> oh, jeez. I doubt that. I doubt that. Yeah, they might have to cool. tattoo brown L's on their bodies or something. Yeah. yeah, you can be entered to win this, but just to enter, you have to get a brown L's tramp stamp. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? There are people, Tom Gonzalez, that would probably do that in a heartbeat just for the chance. Oh, yeah. There's always that possibility. Dang. Well, I don't know. Maybe we need to, to see if uh, Brownells would be willing to sponsor our um, uh, testing review budget uh, so that we can take more rifles out to the range. Oh, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. Working on uh, <laughs> working. That would be very nice. Uh, working on facts and firearms for a T&E on their lightweight rifle and uh, hope to Hope to get some trigger time on that. The ammo sponsor would definitely uh, be nice and alleviate some of the pain. Yeah, that would be nice. I mean, I know I'm complaining about shooting somebody else's rifle and like going out to range time and stuff like that, but dude, that stuff adds up after a while. Well, it does, but at least you're not having to go out there with uh, something belt fed or with a giggle switch, right? Yeah, I might that, comp. That gets I comp, almost yeah. unbearable. I might comp myself if we did that. <laughs> But I tell you, you know, the the history of the AR is riddled with so much in the way of politics. And I don't know enough about Eugene Stoner to know whether he was above all that. But uh, Stoner passed away in 1997. And honestly, I don't know that he really ever saw the AR-15, the M-16, in its final form, in its, you know, highest and best. which. You know, I think it's kind of sad. I mean, I think worst case, um, Kalishnikov, I think you could say that his platform is about as good as it's going to get. Man. Simple, simple and genius. Yep. Yep. So what other things are there to discuss about the AR-15? How beautiful it is. Well, I mean, 
you caress yours a lot, so I don't think we want to go down that dark, dark road. I, pol- I polish my lowers. But um, you know what? I think we might need to come back and do another episode where we talk about some of the myths. Wait, there's myths it. surrounding the AR-15? Well, I think there's a lot of myths. Is this the myth where if I leave it by my front door and I go to work for the day, it's going to go out and kill a bunch of innocent people? Are these no, the kind no, of myths? No, no, no. Not oh, those kinds of myths. Not those kinds of myths. Other kinds of myths. Not the, not the kind of myths that AR-15s are the most deadliest weapon ever known to mankind. They assassinated the dinosaurs. Nope, 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 nope. No. That in the second coming that Jesus is going to be holding an AR-15? Is that that myth? No, I think he's supposed to be holding a flaming sword. Flaming sword? Yeah. <gasps> Not a flaming pig. <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> I don't know if that'd be kosher. <laughs> So well, we'll, do, think, we'll do a myth show. Yeah, I think we should do a myth show. Maybe we can even ask the listeners to to um, to clue us in on any myths about the AR platform that they know of. Okay, if you've been listening this long, shoot us an email. Uh, read what's the email? It's uh, ar15podcast at gmail.com. Gmail. So ar15podcast at gmail.com. Give us your myths. Um, that you've heard on the AR-15, and we'll pick one winner uh, to pick up a Otis cleaning kit and some chemicals. And I still have Otis kits to mail out. I'm such a slacker. Um, I will try to get that done this weekend. Well, I certainly hope so. I did clean up the, the gun room where Reed will be sleeping in the matter of, what, 40 days? 40 days. 40 days. Shot show in 40 days. So uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about the myths. So ar15podcast at gmail.com. Uh, with your myths, we'll pick somebody there. If you have one, a cleaning kit, I have you on the list. I've, I got it. Uh, we'll get those out soon. I'll put the kids to work. All right. Well, I think uh, with that, you ready to read us out? Yeah, you can support the show by going to ar-15podcast.com. All your support goes right back into the show uh, through Patreon or PayPal. Thanks to those that have supported the show through the years. You have made the show what it is today, um, and it helps bring us the content and production value of the podcast about your favorite black rifle. Also, sign up for that unbranded AR giveaway complete builder's kit from front to back, uh, ar 15 AR-15podcast.com. That's AR-15podcast.com. I want to say thank you to our uh, show sponsor, Otis Technology, and also our main topic sponsor, Ammo.com. Save on your next order of $200 or more when you use the link, Ammo.com slash AR-15podcast. And with that, we're done. All right, guys. Have a good week. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.